Ladies, praise team, pretty awesome. Let's hear it for you. Good job, guys. So good. Welcome to everyone. My name is Tim Harris. I am pastor here at Woodburn Baptist Church and the Overflow Guys. We love you. Thank you for worshiping with us. Perry, Oklahoma, Church on the Square. Pastor Brown, we love you guys as well. So good to welcome you to worship today. Open your Bibles to the book of 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. I really want to speak as pastor to the church today. I want to speak to those uh, in this flock at Woodburn Baptist Church and all those, uh, all those at Perry, all those around who relate to our church and who think of yourselves as somehow associated with us. I want to speak to you as pastor today uh, about something very, very foundational for, for the church. I'm talking to church people today. If you talk to people outside the church, sometimes they will have complaints about the church, about us. And it's interesting, no matter what church it is, no matter who's doing the criticizing, they'll tend to criticize church people for two things. Either they don't live right or they don't love people. They don't love each other. Would you say that's fair to say? That's what most of the criticism is. In other words, people outside the church, they have an intrinsic expectation of what God's people ought to be like. They ought to be loving and they ought to live right. It's very interesting, though, how when you get inside the church, when you become inside, and this becomes an every Sunday sort of thing, how quickly we forget those basic things, to love people and live right. So I want to call you back to these things in Scripture this morning. 1 John chapter 3. I believe that at the current moment, our church is healthy, our church is strong. At the very same time, I would say, I don't think that we have the quality of love that we used to have and that we need to have. And I want to call you back to that. We've got to love each other and we've got to live right. And those things go together, especially for the children of God. So 1 John chapter 3, 10 verses. This is important scripture. It's so good. Uh, read along with me. 1 John chapter 3. First verse. See how very much our Father loves us. Just right there. See how very much our Father loves us. Do you even understand? Do you even understand how much he loves you? Because I'd say I don't. Sometimes in my prayer life, I'll get very quiet and I'll say, God, I just want to hear your voice. I want to hear you speak to me. And I will hear God say that he just loves me. I will feel his love. I, I will hear him say he loves me. And there's something in my heart that, that just sort of pulls away from that, that turns away from that. I, I can't explain it. It's just so hard for me to accept his kind of love. But understand what the scripture says. See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we're God's children because they don't know him. Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he's not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we'll be like him, for we will see him as he really is. And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins is breaking God's law, for all sin is contrary to the law of God. And you know that Jesus came to take away our sins, and there is no sin in him. Anyone who continues to live in him will not sin. But anyone who keeps on sinning does not know him or understand who he is. 
Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they're children of God. So now we can tell who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. Strong words. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. Take your seats. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us. That's the way the King James says it. See how very much our Father loves us. Everything begins with God's great love. Not too long ago, I had this friend, and I thought that my friend was angry with me. I thought my friend was angry. And it's funny, because I thought that my friend was angry with me, I got angry at them. Has that ever happened to you? You know what I'm talking about? It's just because I thought that they were mad at me. I felt anger in me. So finally, I just went to my friend and said, are, are, are you mad at me? Is there something between us? Are, are you angry with me? My friend said, no. I thought you were mad at me. I said, no, I'm not mad at you. I thought you were mad at me. I said, no, I thought you were mad at me. You, you, you understand? The, the point I'm making is, there was nothing between us at all except love. It's just that when I began to perceive that, that, that he was mad at me, when I thought that my friend was mad at me, that made me mad at him. And then he perceived I was mad at him, and that made him mad at me. And, and it's so strange how if we have a certain perception of how someone feels about us, that affects the relationship. This is why it's so important that this first verse sink in with you. You've got to understand how God feels about you. Because if you're thinking that God is angry with you, if you're thinking that God is somehow always angry, never pleased with you, then I'm telling you, that affects the way you relate to him. If you assume that God is angry with you, chances are you'll be one of those people that walks around mad at God. You understand? The scripture says you've got to see what great love God has for you and me. You've got to understand God's great love. Everything begins with God's love. And once God's love begins to flow through me, do you understand? Then I will begin to love other people. It's, it's simply foundational. It's one of the essential truths of the Christian life. That it begins with God's love for me. And once that love begins to work upon me and through me and in me, all of a sudden I begin to live this life of love. That love flows through me. Scripture goes so far to say that if you don't love people, you don't belong to God. It's a clear way of trying to discern who belongs to God and who doesn't. You can just look at their life. Is there love in their life? you got to love people. And it's not just people in general. It's individual people. It's people in particular. And if you want to get real specific, according to the book of 1 John, you've got to love other Christians. You've got to love each other. At Woodburn Baptist Church, I'm telling you, this church becomes a tremendous joke if we don't love each other and if that love isn't genuine and authentic and everyday love. You understand? We have to love each other. We have to love each other. So let me ask you, how many friends do you have? 
How many friends do you have? Not Facebook friends. I'm not asking you how many Facebook. How many Facebook friends do anybody have? Tell me, how many you got? Like 800? Somebody got like 800? I can go on your page and look. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Is 800 a lot of Facebook friends? Not really. It's really easy to accumulate Facebook friends. Probably, if, if you're on Facebook, you probably got at least 100 friends, maybe 200. Some of you got 1,000. Where did you get 1,000 friends? It's really interesting. There is now a page on Facebook that is protesting. They want to raise a limit. Did you know that Facebook has a limit on the number of friends you can have? How many do you think it would be? 5,000. That's the limit. And there are people who are angry about that. They want to raise the limit. They want to raise the limit on Facebook friends. They want more than 5,000. Well, how many more would you want? 5,000? That's ridiculous. You can't have 5,000 friends. You're not capable of knowing 5,000 people. It's not even possible. Actually, there are scientists, there's an anthropologist named Robin Dunbar who has actually studied human relationships, and he's developed a theory, it's called Dunbar's Number. Robin Dunbar says that there is a specific number of people that that you can actually call friend. A a human being is only capable of, of maintaining so many genuine relationships. He says that there's a number for that, and he says it's rather universal across cultures. Anywhere you go, people are really only capable of knowing and loving about so many people. What do you think that number would be? 5,000? Lower. 500? Lower. 150. Actually, don't disagree. That's right. 150 is Robin Dunbar's number. 150. Robin Dunbar says that 150 is, is, is the number of people that we're sort of created hardwired to know and relate to. It's interesting. If you go around the globe, if you go into the bush and, and you find small hunter and gathering tribes, those tribes will tend to be about 150 people. Any larger than that, and, and people begin to, 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 uh, to, to, to find relationships disintegrating. Any larger than that, groups will begin to split and form other groups. It's about 150. So in other words, if this anthropologist is to be trusted, what he's saying is in your life, you can revolve in a certain kind of social network where you'll have meaningful relationships. You'll maintain the relationships. You'll know the person. You'll continue to think of them and feel close, but you're limited. And the limit is about 150. You just can't love more than 150 people at one time. Now, you're capable of knowing more people. The number for that is about 1,500. You can know and recognize, call the name of about 1,500 people, but you cannot maintain relationships with that many people. You're limited. I'm limited too. Robin Dunbar says you're limited to to about 150 people. That's the maximum. Now, that's really interesting because some time ago, our church grew past that point of 150 people. And so if Robin Dunbar's number has anything truthful to say, then it probably has something to say for those of us in the church. I think it's got something really interesting to say about church planting, but that's another sermon. 
But very, very interesting is what that would mean to, to the church. Now, even in, in, in books about the church, they'll often say that once a church passes about 150, 200 people, a church becomes a very different kind of church. And I think we can say that we've lived through that. You really do sort of cross a line, and once you pass that 150, 200 mark, all of a sudden it feels very different to be a part of that church. Now, the thing you've got to recognize is that God often grows churches past that point. If it's true that relationships are tighter and a church feels more like a real family if the church is smaller, then it would make sense that maybe God would just want every church to be small. There are a whole lot of small churches, so obviously that, there's some truth in that. But there are a lot of churches larger than that, too. So, so what's the point? What's God doing? Well, the point is, from God's perspective, the church is not primarily a social network for us. Do you understand? The church is not in existence on the earth just so we can have a circle of close friends. The church does not exist simply to have our social needs met, our our need for friendship, our need for close relationships. Now, don't get me wrong. It's very important in the church to have genuine love. But the church does not exist simply that we can have a sort of social club. In other words, God has something else for Woodburn Baptist Church. God has grown us to the point where I believe God has certainly something, a a larger purpose than simply you and I having a very close friendship. It's a 2020 vision that we talk about. It's going to take a lot of people. It's going to take a lot of us. We're building the kingdom. What God has for us is a large purpose. And so I'm excited. I love the way our church is growing. I love the second campus at Franklin. I love multiple services. I love that right now we have people in the overflow listening to this sermon, worshiping with us, and you don't even see each other. I love that. I really love that. But how do we begin to follow the commandment to love each other when we don't even know each other? Do you understand that you folks will worship in this room and then you'll leave this room and you'll go to Bible study groups and then a whole new group will come in at 11? And if you've ever slept too late and came to 11 o'clock service, what did you say when that was over? I didn't know anybody in that service. I I didn't know anybody in there. Yeah. What do you do about that? What do we do about that as a church? This room right now has about twice the number that Robin Dunbar would say is practical for, for genuine relationships. You don't even know everybody in this room. And if you don't know each other, how can you love each other? Our love is limited. Our hearts are limited, and I can only maintain relationships with a very limited number of people. But, but, but let's back up a minute. Go back to the scripture with me. First John chapter 3 reminds us that God's love is unlimited. God's love is absolutely unlimited. God is not in any way reduced. God is not in any way stretched but by having to love all of us and know all of us. It still absolutely blows my mind to know that if we all stopped right now and prayed, which we do frequently in worship, if we all dropped to our knees right now and we all started praying at the same time, God can hear every single one of our prayers as if we were the only person praying. 
You understand? God has this tremendous capacity to love and to love personally and to maintain personal focus on every single one of us and every person on the planet and every person in glory. God has this capacity to maintain personal focus. He loves each one as if they were the only one. Do you understand that? Of course you don't. Of course you don't. You just simply have to accept that God is so far beyond me, so far beyond you. His capacity to love is completely without any kind of boundaries or limits. I love that. I don't understand that. I can't do that, but God can. Behold what manner of love that God has lavished upon us that we might be called what? Children of God. God loves us so much, he calls us his children. And that's what we are, the scripture says. That's what we are. That's what we are. Why are we God's children? Because God says we are. That's what we are, because God says we are. A couple of weeks ago, actually several weeks ago, we were getting ready for our trip to Central America, Casey and Wade and I. We had to dig out birth certificates your birth certificate is that black document that was in your baby book. Maybe it was in my case. And it's put away and you never have to think about it until you need it. And then when you need it, you don't have it. It's always gone. So you have to order a new one. But it's always amazing to see. I love to see my birth certificate. That's the paper they filled out on the day I was born. March 7th, 1965. And it's amazing to look, and I just like to look and check the names of my parents. I like to make sure the babies weren't mixed up in the hospital. I'm 47, but I still like to look and make sure Don, Diane, Harris, I like seeing their names there. And then I look and I see my name, Timothy Wade Harris. Where did that name come from? Well, yeah, it's my name. Who got to name me? Don and Diane Harris. They got to name me. They got to name me Tim. Now, it turns out later I found out that before they had me, they had a cat named Tim. <laughs> Apparently, they tried that name out on a cat. Not bitter at all. They tried that name out on a cat, and then they gave it to me. But the point is, they could name the cat that, and they could name me that. They got to name me. Why did they get to name me? I had no say in it. I would have rather been named Keith Lockwood. That's the name I picked for myself in sixth grade. Keith Lockwood. But my name is Tim Harris. It will be Tim Harris because they named me that. That's what they called me. Why did they get to call me that? Because... I belong to them. Naming is always the prerogative, the privilege of, of belonging. When you get a dog, when you get a cat, the first thing you'll do is name that animal. Why do you name that animal? It's a sign of belonging. That animal's not really yours until you have a name for it, until it knows the name that you call it. So the scripture says, behold what manner of love the Father has for us. And he calls us his children. He calls us his children. That's what we are because that's what he says we are. Okay, so back it up one step further. Who does God call his children? Who are the children of God? 
Now, if you listen to the culture, if you, if you listen to Oprah, or if you listen to nearly anybody else who talks on television, if you listen to the way politicians speak sometimes when they want to use religious language, you'll sometimes hear people say, we're all God's children. Is that true? Is that true? Are we all God's children? When you walk down the street or when you walk down the hallway at school and you look at all the teenagers at South Warren High School or Franklin Simpson High School, every teenager you pass, are they all God's children? Everybody you work with, are they all God's children? If you walk through Woodburn, house to house, trailer to trailer, is everybody God's children? No. No. Now, everybody's created by God. Everyone is made in God's image, I would say that. Everyone belongs to God in the sense that he's the maker of everyone. I would say that. But Scripture does not say that God literally calls every single person on the planet his children. You know this. You understand this because Scripture makes that clear. Go back to John chapter 3, verse 16. You know this verse, and what does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes, yeah, whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's, it's whosoever believes. It's not the whole world. Now the offer of salvation, the invitation into God's family is extended to the whole world. Absolutely. God wants to adopt every man, woman, boy, and girl into his family. He wants to call them his children, but he leaves that final choice up to you. You get to decide whether or not you join his family. He's invited you to be called his child, but that choice is up to you. Go back to John, the Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 10, talking about Jesus here. Jesus came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. Jesus came to his own people, and even they rejected him. Verse 12. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. To all who believed, to all who accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. That word become, what does that mean? Become. Become means to, 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 to become something that you weren't already. Do you understand? There's, there's some change that takes place. Something happens to make me what I wasn't already. So we're not all born children of God. We have to be reborn into God's family, born again, as, as, as it says later in the Gospel of John. Do you understand that? Everyone is invited into God's family, but not everyone is called children of God. That title belongs only to those who believe in Jesus and who have accepted his offer of adoption into God's family. Back to first time with me. Look at this scripture. It's amazing. See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that's what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we're God's children because they don't know God. Dear friends, we're already God's children, and he's not yet shown us what we will be when Christ appears, but we do know that we'll be like him, for we'll see him as he really is. 
It's interesting. John wants to, to, to help stretch you, help you understand everything that Christ does for us. And the fact that I am called God's son now and you're God's daughter, the fact that we're called the children of God now, that present reality points to, to, to the assurance of, of a future kind of reality. In other words, this isn't just all of it. This isn't all of what Christ has for us. It's not just that he wanted to adopt us into his family in, in this earthly life. Something even better awaits me. That there is a, a terrific and tremendous transformation that's going to take place in my life and yours. When will that happen? Y'all going to make me read that whole passage again? When does it happen? When we see him. When we see him. When I see Christ, something is going to happen to me, something absolutely unimaginable. I will be completely transformed. When I see him, I will become just like him. The very moment, the very act of seeing Jesus is going to transform my entire being. I'm going to become just like him. In other words, when we see Jesus, it's like in that instant, in that instant I will become his mirror. I will become his mirror, and I will reflect his glory. Isn't that, that amazing? In, in that moment when we see Jesus, we will be instantly, in the, in the twinkling of an eye, transformed. I'll be just like him. I will be just like him. Now, why is that important? Why is that necessary? Why is that a promise? Why must I become just like him? So that I can stay with him. So that I can abide with him for, for eternity. Remember, he is a holy God. He is a tremendous, awesome, glorious, holy God. And I'm not holy. I'm not glorious. But I will be. So that I can be with him. That's why John says, everyone who has this eager expectation must keep themselves pure. See how quickly and how easily the scripture goes from talking about God's love to talking about my sin. And from then on, the scripture continues to pile on about my sin. Everyone who sins is breaking God's law, for all sin is contrary to the law of God. And you know that Jesus came to take away our sins, and there's no sin in him. My goodness, why bring sin up? I thought we were just talking about how much God loves me. I thought we were just talking about how much he loves me, and now we're talking about my sin? How are those things even related? Why is that important? Why are we going there? Fascinating testimony of a, of a young woman who would come to Christ lately. She had grown up with parents who thought that building her self-esteem was the most important job that they had. You know parents like that? And so this girl, all of her life, everything she ever did was praised. She was the delight of her parents. They loved her completely. And for that reason, they considered it their whole job just to build her up. They told her that she was their princess. They told her that she was beautiful. They told her that she was smart. And she believed it. She believed it. 
And as she grew, it became more and more difficult because this child who was a princess, this child who was so smart, this child who was so beautiful, I'm telling you, she wasn't all that. She wasn't all that. As parents, we love our children and we see them that way, but the rest of the world doesn't. The rest of the world doesn't think your little boy is a prince, you understand? They see him more clearly. And this young woman, as she grew up, she began to see herself more clearly. It was interesting and puzzling to her. that There was one episode in particular when she got in a lot of trouble at school and the teachers were punishing her. And the mother, this girl's mother, went to the school and jumped on the teachers. She corrected the teachers for trying to discipline her daughter. Now, at the time, the girl said, I sort of enjoyed that. I love that. You know, go mom. But she said at the same time, I knew my teachers were right. I knew they were right. This girl who was always taught that she was loved and beautiful and and, and delightful, that this girl who was always uh, praised and, and never in any way was anything negative acknowledged about her, this gaping hole began to open up inside her soul. Because it didn't make sense to her. All of this love and and all of this incredible praise, it began to just be sort of empty because deep down inside, she knew she wasn't all that. Her parents could say she was beautiful, but she still knew on the inside, there was an ugliness that didn't necessarily show up in the mirror. And although everybody was always told to leave her alone and never correct her at school, this girl knew that sometimes she was wrong. She did horrible things that needed correction. As a young woman, she became absolutely puzzled. She went into drugs, she went into promiscuity in, in, in all kinds of ways, trying to make sense of this inflated self-esteem that simply did not in any way coordinate with the with the sense of moral decay inside her heart. That's why the gospel was such good news. When she found out that there's a God who loves you, but he sees you as you are. You understand? He knows you. He he knows what's beautiful about you. He made you. He put that beauty in you. But he also knows all of the sin in you. He's fully aware. He acknowledges and judges the sin inside of you. And yet he loves you anyway. Do you understand? Part of God's wonderful love is not that he just simply turns away from everything that's objectionable in me. God sees it better than I do. God sees it more clearly than any human being. God knows me. He knows me completely. He knows me fully. And he loves me. He loves me. You see, that's the gospel. It's not cheap love. It's not love is blind love. This is God's love. He sees my sin. That's why he sends his son Jesus. The the, the scripture says Jesus comes to take away our sins. Jesus comes to separate me from my sin. To separate me from that moral rot inside me. To separate me from all of that ugliness. All of that selfishness. Jesus came to separate me from that. Do you understand? That's why the scripture says those who belong to Christ, they don't sin. Yeah, I know. 
I know, but that's what First John says, that they don't sin. Well, but I do. I, I, I mean, you do too. I, I, I do continue to sin. And, and elsewhere, John acknowledges that. If, if you say you don't have sin, you, you lie. So, so John understands the, the truth about you and me. That The point is, I, I'm not going to... I may sin, but, but I'm not going to continue to sin. I'm not going to wallow in, in my sin. My sin is not going to be a, a comfortable kind of lifestyle for me. The sin in my life is not going to be something that I tolerate. It's going to be something I battle every single day, and I do. I battle sin in my life every single day, just like you. I despise that part of me. I despise the sin in my heart because the sin in my heart is contradictory to everything Christ is trying to do in me. Do you understand that? It contradicts the very life of Christ in me. That's why as God's people, we need to live right. It's why as God's people, we have to participate. We have to keep ourselves pure, even as Christ is pure. He has come to take away our sins. And if you continue with your life to run towards sin, do you understand? You're running away from Christ. They don't go together. They can't go together. So this secret kind of life that you keep, the secrets that you keep from your spouse so that nobody ever knows what you really do, what you're really like, that the secrets that you keep from your parents so that as long as you don't get caught, you feel like you're doing all right. Do you understand? This is sin, and God is not blind to it, and it has no place in the believer's life. No place. So if in your life you have cozied up to sin, if in your life you become very, very comfortable once more with your immorality, very, very comfortable with your anger. Very, very comfortable with your addictions. If you have no compulsion, no guilt, no feeling that there's something wrong and Christ is the answer for that, then I'm telling you, you've got some very profound spiritual problems. You're probably not a Christian. I'm not saying that Scripture says that. This is how we know who God's children are, the Scripture says. That they live righteously. And they love each other. Again, John continues to weave these two things together so tightly. that They, they live right, they live righteously, and they love each other. How do those things go together? Well, it's simple. Don't forget that when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? If you could sum all of God's law up into one, one word, what would you say? And what did Jesus say? Love. love. The greatest commandment of all is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said if you want to sum everything up that God expects, you would sum it up with, with love. So, so understand, if love is the summary of, of all of God's law, if love is the summary of everything that God wants from us, then, then basically sin is anything that contradicts love. And when you stop and think about it, the Ten Commandments all the way down, sin is always in one way or, or another to, to act in an unloving way. Sin is, it, by its very definition, a failure to love. That's why these things go together. That's why if you live a life of sin, you cannot at the same time live a life of love. By very definition, they contradict each other. 
We're God's children, the scripture says. That's what we are because that's what he calls us if you've accepted him and if you believe him. But if we're called God's children, we have to live like God's children. And God's children live right. And God's children love each other. You know, to be real honest, in our church, for all of the wonderful things going on, I don't feel like we're loving each other very well. I'm speaking as your pastor. I'm speaking as somebody as plugged into this church as anybody can be. I'm just not sure we're loving each other very well. I I know our church has grown. I know that it is now impossible to know and love everybody. I I know that that's become an impossibility. I can't do it. I can't do it. And you can't either. So what do we do? How do we fulfill this obligation, this commandment to love each other while at the same time it's so difficult to even know everybody's name? We, we can't even know each other's name sometimes. H- how do we do this? I think in the first place we have to acknowledge that, that we honestly can't. I can't. I'm called to be a pastor. I'm called to be your pastor. And I can say I, I do. I, I love all of you. But if in this church you're expecting that you will have a close personal relationship with me at all times, I don't know that I can promise that. I say that because with frequency, people have joined the church and said, you know, Pastor Tim, in my last church, me and the pastor were just like this. And I think to myself, oh, no. Oh, no. Because that's what, that's what, that's what the person may be expecting, that that, that, that person may be, we're going to be just like this. I, I, I wish that were true. I wish I could do that for 600, 700 people. I can't. I just can't. And, and it's not because my heart's not in it. It's just I'm a human being. I can't possibly maintain a close personal relationship. And you can't either. And, and if that's your expectation coming into the church, that somehow you're going to find uh, all of us are going to be close personal friends, if that's your expectation, you're going to be disappointed because it's just not possible. It's just not possible. So, what is possible? Well, what is possible? Well, it is possible that I can love you. I can love you without a close personal relationship. Now, I'm not saying we make love cheap. It just means in in every instance when we rub shoulders, I I can love you. I I can treat you with kindness, and I can treat you with love, and I can try to learn your name. I can ask your name 500 times. That's only because I care. I want to know your name. And you've got to do the same thing. The fact that we can't have close personal relationships with every single person, it doesn't mean we walk past each other in the hall like strangers. You can't do that. You still got to acknowledge each other and talk to each other. Sitting right here, you've been in this room now for oh, an hour and eight minutes, and some of you have not even acknowledged the people sitting right around you. And some of them rode in the car with you. You can't do that. You can't sit there like people aren't around you. The person in front of you right now, have they not spoken to you? The person in front of you, if they've not spoken, I want you to reach up right now and thump them. Just thump them. As hard as you can, just thump them and tell them we're not going to do that. We're not going to be like that. Thump them. Thump them. 
You can't just act like there aren't other people in the room. You can't be like that. We still got to act in a loving way. We've got to love each other. Even if we can't take everybody home for lunch, you can still speak when you see each other. You can still smile and exchange names and and do your best to, to show friendship in this place. We're God's children. When people walk in from the outside, they expect to find a community of love. You can't walk in and act like we're at some sort of social gathering where you can't speak. That's just weird. It's just weird. And it's especially weird in God's house. You can't just walk past each other like strangers. You can't sit there with your purse in your lap and act like the person sitting next to you isn't even there. What's wrong with you? You can't be like that. Yeah, well, we can't take everybody home for lunch, but I can at least speak to you as, as we rub shoulders. I can smile at you and show you all the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness. You understand? I can do that, and you can too. You can too. And I can love very deeply about 150 of you, apparently, if the science is to be trusted. I can love 150 of you very, very well, and you can too. You can too. You can't take everybody home with you, but you could take somebody. Melvin Norris will go home with you today. Just take him. Just take one. Did you understand? Of course, of course we can't maintain close personal relationships with people in in the opposite service. But you can do it with the ones you can do it with. You can still love people. You can love a lot of people. You can start somewhere with somebody. You understand, if we all loved everybody in our circle, everybody in this church would be loved. If we all made it a priority to have genuine friendships with the few, then everybody in this church would have genuine friends. Do you see how that works? I can't do all the ministry at all. I can't possibly. I can't possibly. There are funerals now that happen at the same hour on the same day. There are surgeries that happen in separate hospitals. I can't be everywhere. But if we divide this out among 600 of us, I think we can cover it. We're still children of God. We still have to love each other. So when did you decide to stop? We're not a small church that can operate like a family. We're a big church, big compared to what we used to be. I like it. I like it. But things that used to happen kind of automatically, now it takes more work, and it's going to take more work to love each other well. So guess what? Let's get to work loving each other. It's harder. So what? God's love is without limits. And it's God's love flowing through me and flowing through you. So if Dunbar is correct and and, and my cap is 150 people, then what does that say? I mean, some of us, our lives are really crowded. Already very crowded and very, very difficult to bring more people in because already you're covered. I get that. I just don't think that's very many of us. I don't think our problem is that we've already got so many people, so many friends that we just can't have more. I don't really think that's our problem. I don't think that our lives are so filled with people. I really think most of us, we're just full of ourselves. We're just full of ourselves. 
we walk in church like we go everywhere else, and we're selfish. We wouldn't mind having lunch with somebody after church. We just want somebody to ask us. We wouldn't mind having friends. We just want people to come be our friend while we sit here with our purse in our lap. Do you understand? We like the idea of love as long as we're on the receiving end. But do you understand? The scripture doesn't make any sort of distinction between receiving and, and the, the giving end. Everybody's on the giving end. It's not about you sitting around waiting for 150 people to come into your life. It's you opening your heart. It's you and me making room in our lives for, for, for people. Because relationships matter. Relationships matter greatly. If the scripture says, this is how you know who the children of God are, they love each other, then understand there's nothing more important than relationships. We got to love each other. We got to love each other greatly. That kind of great love, I'm honest, is not in me. I have a great selfishness in me sometimes. I like a lot of me time, just like you. But I'm a child of God. I belong to a father who loves greatly and lavishly. For that very reason, you and I, we have to love greatly and lavishly. We have to love each other. Because we're children of God. We're children of God. Pray with me. God, we are your children, and that is what we are because that's what you called us when we believed. But Lord, we confess, though you call us your children, and that is what we are, Lord, that is not often how we live. We, we live like the children of some other father. We, we don't often reflect your love, not even when we're at church. God, help us and forgive us. God, because we are your children and because your primary attribute is love, sacrificial, outward-flowing love, then, Lord Jesus, we want that kind of sacrificial, outward-flowing love in our lives, in our families, in our church. God, let nobody walk into this house ever and walk back out and not feel like they were loved and, and welcomed. Let nobody in this house, Lord, feel lonesome and alone and, and unloved and unfriended. Oh, Lord Jesus, help all of us to see it as our responsibility to love and to give love and to stick our necks out in love. Lord, help us to take our personal responsibility, Lord, to love not just in word but in everyday acts of kindness and goodness. Not just to say we love each other, but to truly love each other. Lord, it is the most hate-filled world. It is a world without love, Lord. The, 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 church, the church should be the one place where true love exists and is shared and is flowing freely. Lord, let us be that church. Not because it's in us, but because it's in you. And we are your children. Lord, if there be any in this house, any in the sound of my voice who are not your children, any, Lord, who have not yet accepted and believed the promise of your love and forgiveness and salvation, the gift of eternal life, Lord, if any 
have not yet been reborn into your family, Lord, then I pray that they will feel the tug of your love, Lord, and surrender to you. Help them, Lord, to believe and accept the gospel. And for those of us who have believed and accepted the gospel, Lord, help us to live rightly and help us to live a life of love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.